Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and uh, we're going to be talking about the good news of the Kingdom of God, because the good news was that it was at hand. And we're going to be talking about it in the context of Matthew 26. We were doing Matthew 26 last week, and uh, I thought we'd finish it up in the afternoon program, but they had technical difficulties, so we're going to finish it up on this show, and... Uh, it seems to be uh, very apropos to even talk about some of the things that are in Matthew 26 and 27, 28, which is going to be the end of Matthew, because there's insurrection, and there's a trial, <laughs> and there is an usurpation of government, and there is a lot of things that are going on that is going to prepare some people for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the destruction of what had become a very powerful civilization. And some people were going to survive this destruction, but they were also going to survive and not just survive, but thrive during this period because they were going to change the way they think. We call that repentance, to change the way they think. And so we've done a little bit in the study and we've been doing it as we go through because the same problems were back in the days of Exodus and the other prophets because man, man's nature, when he was created, he was created to be a certain kind of person. And then that was altered because he chose to go down a certain road that clouded his understanding. Actually, he moved from the light into the darkness. And he depended upon his own understanding, his own interpretation of facts and information. He began to decide for himself what was good and evil. And uh, that opened the door to all sorts of deception and bondage and uh, not being prepared for disasters. I talked to a number of people. I may have mentioned it last week even on the show, but uh, I thought it was fascinating. And, you know, I, I do a lot. I've been studying archaeology and, and, and uh, geology even uh, since I was a little kid. And, uh, I mean, a very little kid. I, I was just fascinated with it. I can, I can remember in the... And the hills, seeing the cutaway of the geology, and then archaeology is looking into the past and a fascination with history. And uh, there's so much information that has been found in my lifetime. Uh, I mean, they didn't even have any evidence, hardly, that Pontius Pilate, at least available evidence to the average college graduate, that Pontius Pilate even existed. And then uh, not even excavating, but just simply renovating some steps in the Holy Lands, what we call the Holy Lands in, in Israel. Actually, I was born before Israel came about. I always 
you know, that we were, we were both born in the same year, so I've been around a long time. But uh, in that country, they were excavating to to repair some stairs, and they flipped up the stone that had been the step for maybe thousands of years, or at least a thousand years, and uh, underneath it was something written. Because uh, it was evidently taken from a building that had fallen down or been torn down or whatever. Well, you know what was written on it? The name Pontius Pilate. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so uh, there was a message from the past that yeah, Pontius Pilate was real. And uh, so that just shows you the evolution of knowledge in our minds about that time. And manuscripts, there are thousands of manuscripts. They found thousands of cuneiform writings now. They have tens of thousands and they haven't, they don't have the archaeologists to even go to it. I mean, one of the oldest archaeological sites in the world that shows a city that nobody knew about was fairly recently discovered, archaeologically speaking, it was just <laughs> discovered immediately, which is at Tepe in Turkey. And, uh, They've only got a small percentage of it uncovered. They know there's a lot more. They can tell through, you know, ground-penetrating radar. There's a huge city that was there. And somebody covered it up. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, a lot of ancient ruins are, you know, you can go in Rome and uh, you can go into a shop there and then they'll have stairways going down to the basement and the basement goes down four stories. And when you get down to the fourth story, you're at the level uh, of Rome when Paul was in prison in Rome. <laughs> Under house arrest, anyway, in Rome. Because the ground is filled in all the way up and they just kept building. But in some places, you can actually still walk downstairs. You know, they've repaired the stairs to go all the way down to the level that used to be street level at the time of Rome. Uh, the Rome that we know of at the time of Jesus Christ. And that was just filled in with natural sediments that come in with the city. Maybe at times it was garbage, whatever. But uh, the building is still there and they just built another building on top of it. Just amazing. And you can walk down those centuries into the basement. I mean, they found whole like haciendas, you know, uh, almost country estates that are actually now in Rome because Rome has expanded out so far, but they used to be outside of the main city. And they found buildings and they they began to excavate those and they find murals on the walls completely covered in dirt from sediment, you know, floods and what have you. What It just filled up. And now they take it away and you see the paintings on the wall. And uh, uh, this was places where people were meeting at the time the apostles were in Rome. The few apostles who went to Rome. Uh, But Christians were in Rome. Claudia and Linus and them. They were in Rome and Paul. They were in the Rome when people were meeting at this place out there, which was where... Supporters of the emperors went. And so they're uncovering that. They're uncovering documents. They're uncovering written information and 
you know, anybody who goes around thinking that Jesus did not exist just hasn't done their homework. And we have an article on that, which you can go read. But he certainly did exist, and he had a profound effect on at least 5% of the Roman Empire. Because that's what we figure that, you know, based on a lot of, you know, calculations, it can fluctuate from that because it's difficult to tell. But at least 5% of the Roman Empire became Christian. Probably a great many more people than 5% were heavily influenced by the presence of Christians. And this is one of the things we want to talk about before we're done today, is the effect that following the way, that's what Christianity was called, the effect of following the way will have on you. But we also want to talk about some of the obstacles that keep you from doing it. You know, I've talked, when we went through our study on Exodus, we mentioned how at the same time, uh, Jordan Peterson was doing a study on Exodus surrounded by scholars and we pointed out what they were missing and all those audios are up you can go and have the, that as a Bible study to study Exodus and find out what was really going on and, and we don't give you everything that was really going on but because it's too much it's too much to uncover too much at once people don't want to do it which is probably why they're not excavating Tepe I say they don't have the money to excavate Tepe, which is, you know, supposed to be a civilization that is ten to twelve thousand years old, and it it's clearly whatever was built there was built there by more than one person. But the thing that I didn't mention yet, but I was about to, is that it didn't fill in with sediment. Somebody covered it up, entire city of stone. They covered it up. Like they didn't want somebody to see that it was there. Now, like I say, it's very clear to me that it was built in stages because you can see the handyman work of these huge monoliths that they have standing there is completely different than 90% of the stone walls. And you can look at some of the stone walls that they've uncovered so far and there's clearly a difference in the workmanship of those stone walls. So the stone walls, I don't think, were built by the same person that put the monoliths up. Or it certainly was not to any sort of skill to the same degree. But according to, if you went to study history in school, even today, they would tell you that we didn't have the technology to build those stones back then. To carve those perfect granite, uh, you know, those stones I say granite, it's not necessarily granite, but uh, those stones at Tepe with the precision that they did and then stack them on top of each other in a much more dramatic way than we see at other sites all around the world. One of the interesting things that I, I, you know, I've always observed myself before anybody made a big deal out of it is that you see certain things pop up in the stone etchings at these locations. Of course, Tepe hadn't really been found when I was a young man studying this. But uh, there is some imagery in these stone archaeological sites that are the same, or uniquely the same, whether you're in India, Burma, uh, Mexico, you know, the Aztecs, amongst the Egyptians and now at Tepe. You see some of the same images 
placed in there and you wouldn't know it unless you saw it in all these other places that are supposedly thousands of years apart and yet uh, even thousands of miles apart in civilizations that were supposedly completely independent. It is very clear that those that imagery should not be exactly, very detailed imagery should not be the same. But yet, there it is. So it creates a mystery. Well, that's one of the things we do here at the Keys of the Kingdom is try to uncover some of the mysteries. But we want to uncover the important mysteries that actually will make a difference in your life. Just like Christ was going to tell you a lot of stuff, but there were some things that were very important which he called the weightier matters. And just in the news today, like I said, in the news today, we have references to insurrections. We have uh, references to, uh, you know, famines and and uh, pestilence and uh, wars and rumors of wars and all these things. And they had those back in the days of Jesus Christ and following you know, the beginning of the first century church, they were dealing with all these things. And like, uh, you know, I was telling in in one recording, I talked about at Pompeii, they, they uncovered these ancient ruins that were all covered with ash in a, in a matter of moments when Vesuvius erupted a few years after the fall of Jerusalem. And there was one house that was excavated that clearly appears to be inhabited by a Christian man and his wife who were bakers and uh, baking bread there for the people in uh, Pompeii. And uh, they're, they're pretty certain that these were Christians based on, I mean, you can see that the couple painted on the wall their faces painted on the wall you could they're, they're clear enough you could recognize them if you saw them today but they didn't find any bodies in their home it's like they knew to get out of town <laughs> now they might have died somewhere in the streets running down the street or something but it appears based on the excavation that they packed up and left town at least the day before if not the week before how did they know? Because they had insight. And that's one of the things we see with Christ is Christ not only has insight as to what is coming and the apostles don't always seem to have that because he's telling them and they're not putting it together. But Jesus knew that Simon would betray him. Uh, he knew that Simon the jar maker, I'll call him jar maker because if you read him in many Bibles, he's called Simon the leper. But we've already explained why he's really Simon the jar maker. And in some Bibles, you'll see him referred to as that. And if you read it in the Hebrew, you'll, and you know a little Aramaic, you'll know why I say that. <laughs> so, anyway, the, the, uh, he's, uh, he knows what Simon is thinking. And he tells them. And basically, his response to what Simon is thinking Shows that Christ has insight that other people don't have. But as we get past Pentecost, we'll see that many Christians began to have that insight. They could tell what was coming. They didn't have to read Revelation to know what was coming. See, when we say we, you know, and I'm all for you reading Revelation, but you better sit down with the Holy Spirit if you want to understand it. 
the same way with Matthew. But the early Christians didn't have Revelation to read and they knew what was coming. And they could prepare for it and act so that others might survive. And of course, the entire Christian network, which we see Paul and Barnabas going through and bringing supplies, you know, to, so that people would survive, is, was a system based on faith, hope, and charity. The systems in the world today are not based on faith, hope, and charity. They're based on force, fear, allegiance, and compelled offerings, and redistribution of wealth through men who exercise authority one over the other. They had that back then, too. And Jesus Christ is very clear that it's not to be that way with Christians. And yet, in the news today, we hear Christians talking about, you you can't ignore politics. you got to get involved in politics. you got to fix all this stuff that's going on because we see crazy stuff going on. I mean, we've seen it for the last couple of years. We were writing about, you know, the real science behind COVID and vaccination. I mean, we're just quoting scientists, top scientists showing their credentials. We have that all up in articles. We were showing that. And it had an effect in our own community here. Because we were sharing it with key people in the community. They were starting to think outside of the CNN narrative. <laughs> and it had an effect in the community. didn't have an effect with everybody. Because some people, they didn't want to change their thinking. They didn't want to repent. But it wasn't that they didn't want to repent of their thinking about COVID or other things that were going on in the news at that time. They didn't want to repent of the things that you needed in order to see what was really going on. Repent of their fear of the light. Their fear of the truth. They preferred to keep sitting in darkness. And of course, that's what we see with the Pharisees in Matthew 26. They're plotting against Jesus. We saw it in Matthew 25. You know, he's doing all these things, but they're plotting against him. That's going on now. If you were actually going to preach today exactly what Christ said to do, his actual directives, not just the metaphors that you can twist around and make them mean other things, but the actual where he said, don't do this <laughs> and do do this. And you were actually doing what he said and not doing what he said not to do. If you were actually doing that, you would be hated by many people in the media, many people in churches, many people in synagogues, many people in government, etc., So if you're going to start repenting, though, you need to repent all the way. You need to come out of the darkness. You need to see the whole light. And so we're going to continue to go through Matthew 26. You know, we talked a little bit last week about uh, how Jesus was still sharing a meal with Judas and he knew Judas was going to betray him. You know, if you, you... called to have a congregation in your local community and you get eight, nine other families to come and join you in that congregation, how do you know you don't get a Judas amongst them? How do you handle that? Do you excommunicate him? Jesus didn't excommunicate him. Jesus shared bread with him. Prayed for him, just like he prayed for Peter. 
Because he walked in forgiveness. He walked in love. He came to serve. He came to serve the good. If you're, if there are any good, I, he also says that none is good but God. <laughs> so, but he came to serve even the wicked because the nature of love is service. The nature of love is to sacrifice for others. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why, why is he serving the wicked? Well, the wicked take it different than the righteous. If you love the wicked, Jesus told you, Moses told you, the prophets told you, it's going to be like hot coals on his head. It isn't hot coals. But he'll think of it as that. He'll think you hate him. You'll think you're trying to make him miserable because you tell him the truth. Have you ever seen that? Well, we've seen that recently in the news. You tell somebody the truth, they just get all angry. They go all Karen on you. I don't want to use overuse that term because there are some really nice girls named Karen. <laughs> but you you get it's become a metaphor of you know craziness. You know, and uh, so why is that? Because the truth, even if it's just intellectual truth, it reeks of a little bit of love. It gets you a little closer to the light. And I hate the light. But that's a good thing for you because it also drives away the wicked. We don't need to excommunicate anybody. We need to turn the love up. The more you turn the love up, the more the wicked will depart from you. And eventually, when you finally do get down there on the shores of the Red Sea and and God is showing you the way out of the captivity, hopefully everybody there on that shore is going to turn the love up. And it will, you'll see a pillar of fire between, <laughs> between you and the wicked. They won't, they won't be able to come. Something will stop them. And it may manifest itself in a miraculous way. Maybe it won't be so miraculous. But uh, it, it will be miraculous, but not so obviously miraculous. Because that's the nature of the Holy Spirit. But then you you need to understand what the real Eucharist is, which we talked about in verse 26 of chapter 26. That the real Eucharist is about that sharing. And, and Jesus is sharing even with the man he knows will betray him and turn him over to the wicked. And we're going to talk a little about who were these guys who were coming and arresting Jesus. And this is going to be important because we're going to look at jurisdiction here a little bit. And why Barabbas? And why this insurrection? Why the trial? And what was going on? Because... The kingdom of heaven is not just about spiritual changes within you and within me, but the way in which those spiritual changes alter the jurisdiction. Because the enemy is from the realm of evil. Sometimes people call that hell. But it has a different pattern than the realm of righteousness. And so we need to see the difference because that's what's going to change your jurisdiction is where you're eating. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're in this 
Matthew 26 and uh, we talked about it a little bit last week but it's it's worth repeating that Jesus takes uh, Peter and the sons of Zebedee who evidently there's some you know the, the, they're kind of developing in their mind that there's some sort of hierarchy within the congregation the little flock that is following Jesus and for some reason he picks in this case he picks three guys to go with him uh, but uh, it's a little bit different than in what we see is the transfiguration. But that custom of picking three other people to go with you is a very common thing in certain social groups at that time. One of them, which was the one that they called the Essenes. They would do this. Where there would be three people, particularly in a congregation, that they they didn't exercise authority over the people, but they were kind of like a mini Sanhedrin, the role of a mini Sanhedrin. And of course, we've talked about Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin didn't elect the high priest. The Sanhedrin didn't legislate. Uh, it, did, it, it acted as a part of the cities of refuge to some degree. Eventually, things could get up to the Sanhedrin to kind of oversee the legal system because they knew that they had to attend because this was the government. They knew they had to attend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. But they were supposed to be the most devout men of charity in the whole nation of Israel. That These were men who walked in charity and forgiveness every aspect of their life. Now, the Sanhedrin evolved in like 191... B.C., the Sanhedrin lost faith in what became the high priest, and there's a way in which they became the high priest. It was through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You pick a minister, and then those ten ministers get together. They pick a minister, and they, you keep doing this in your tribe all the way until you get to the top ten ministers in this network of charity, and then they pick a minister. And that minister is the high priest of that tribe. And he gets together with the high priest and all the other tribes, and they pick a minister. And that's the high priest. But it's a, it's a, not a role of telling you what you can believe and speaking ex cathedra and that you have to believe this and you have to do that and, and, and he's not legislating or anything. He's an example. And of course we see him fulfilling that example with things like the heave offering, and the wave offering, which had nothing to do with shaking barley above your head on a particular day. I just heard someone who is a Jewish scholar talking about, you know, the, the same word that we see for season back there in Genesis, in the first part of Genesis, is the same word we see for feast, actually spelled with the same Hebrew letters, way back when we're listening to Moses. Of course, Moses wrote Genesis and Moses wrote Exodus and Leviticus and, and, and you know, that, the first five books. He's responsible for that. At least most people accept that idea. I'm okay with that. Somebody's wrote it because I see these mathematical po- patterns in the, in the letters that is just not an accident. <laughs> Somebody, so it's like DNA. I mean, it's just like spread out. 
throughout the, the entire text. Well, that's not an accident. It's not done by a lot of different people. Most people couldn't even see it. But here we have this uh, same word that could mean feast also means season. And, of course, this particular scholar was saying that, so we know there are special times in our feast that we have an appointment with God and we have to go and we got to, you know, have the feast of tabernacle and the feast of, you know, which is also called the feast of booze and all these other, you know, what we would refer to as Pentecost and unleavened bread and all these kinds of things. There's Hebrew names to this, but once you know that the altars were systems of charity to take care of the social needs and welfare of society, as opposed to the systems of social welfare that they had in places like Sumer, before it collapsed, and Rome, the free bread of Rome, before it collapsed, and probably in Tepe, before it collapsed. And then somebody hid it <laughs> under a pile of rubble. We don't know where all that rubble came from. It wasn't natural sediment. Somebody brought it in and covered it up. And that's a big job to cover up a whole city with rubble. How did they do that? Why did they do that? Anyway, another question. Lots of unanswered questions. But what we want to find out is what is the important thing that's actually going to make a difference in our personal lives on a day-to-day basis? Well, we have to find out what pure religion is. Yeah, I heard uh, somebody talking about, you know, if you're if you're going to get married, there there was four things that you had to check out. I could, I could think of five. But the, the last one, he said, is that you had to have a common faith in God. If you're both atheists, well, that might work. You know, if the other other things are also in place. But if one's an atheist and one's a Christian, it's not going to work. It's not going to last. Because you, 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 basically what he's saying is that you have to have the same values. And uh, and he actually clarifies that. It's not about having a religion you know, like I'm a Baptist or I'm a Lutheran or something like that. you have to have the same values. Because I can take you into a Lutheran church and people have different values. And, and what, which is, or a Methodist church, which is why there's this synod and that synod and you know, there's all kinds of division. And that's why there's 40,000 different denominations. Because there's 40,000 different sets of values. But we want the values of Christ. We want to know what Christ valued. And uh, in order to do that, it's going to take a little bit of revelation. It's going to take the Holy Spirit entering into your life. And of course, everything that Christ has been telling us, all the parables, all the directives is telling you how to prepare yourself for the Holy Spirit. The world has lots of substitutes for the Holy Spirit. That That's why evil wanted you to eat at the tree of knowledge, because that was a substitute for the tree of life. You deciding for yourself what is good and evil is a substitute for letting the Holy Spirit tell you, reveal to you what is good and evil. What you should do, what you shouldn't do. And the Holy Spirit can be very precise. Your tree of knowledge can get you all over the place. So we want to get to that tree of life and find out what he's doing. And one of the ways, as they said in Gethsemane, is that he goes and prays. And he prays with other people. You know, he moves away a little bit. But he actually takes them with him and say, Terry, here with me. 
And this is, of course, what you do in every congregation. You tarry with the Holy Spirit. You you go and you sit and you pray. Who you pray into? You're praying to the Creator, the Spirit of the Creator, the the Great Spirit, you know, whatever. But it's supposed to be the God of creation. You can put all kinds of temporal names on it, spell it lots of different ways, but the spelling of God's name is telling you about the character of God. That's what a name is. It's who God really is. And so what is he really leading you to do? And that's what we try to show you in our study on Exodus, what Yahweh was really leading you to do. Because I can show you lots of people are going around saying Yahweh was actually a demon and creating a society of bloodshed and murder and and oppression. Well, they falsely and privately interpret the Bible and they don't get it. We were trying to show you what was really going on. But this praying, he has three stages to this praying. We see it in the first hour and the second hour and the third hour. And, And if you look at the prayers... And and the position that Christ is putting himself in for more than an hour, that, you know, the, the thought process, because it's not about words. He's, he's trying to draw you a picture. You know, and that, that, you know, he says, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, you know, that's, that's what he's telling them, basically, from the beginning to the end. But they don't stay awake. They fall asleep. They get distracted. And of course, this, and every congregation has to face this temptation. The world's going to throw all kinds of distractions at you that are not of the Holy Spirit. They're of the flesh. Or they're of the world. Or, you know, I mean, there are people who are taking drugs and think that that will solve the problem. I, t- I told you that we followed Jordan Peterson in our study of Exodus. Well, yeah, we we did that to show you the contrast from these scholars and what the words actually mean and say. And we put it all down in black and white. We have the recordings all there so you can look at it. And if you disagree with it, get a hold of us and we will have, you know, if you've done your homework, maybe we'll have you on a show in the afternoon and, and we'll discuss it. But you got to do your homework. Because, I mean, there were people that Jesus wouldn't talk to, too. But, anyway, so, Jesus is talking about this prayer, which is admitting somebody else knows, somebody else has the source of what I should do and what I shouldn't do. It's not me. Somebody else can guide me. This is through the praying to the Spirit of God, to God Himself, through the Spirit. But He's also watching for an answer. Of course, the world's going to offer you all kinds of answers. And evidently to the apostles, the answer was go to sleep. Go back to sleep. Forget about Jesus over there sweating blood. You just go back to sleep. And even though their spirit, their personal spirit was willing, their flesh was weak because they were trying, they were still dependent upon the flesh for an answer. And this is why you have to be careful of the world. The world will offer you all kinds of answers through the flesh. Jordan Peterson took uh, 
some sort of antidepressant drugs and ended up in a hospital in Soviet Union in a coma. Because he was trained that, that that's what you do. You take these drugs if you have depression and all this stuff. Now he's tried some different things like diet. Well, diet requires he's fasting from certain foods and only eating other foods. So he's entered in. He thinks it's the diet that's helping him. It's the fasting that is actually helping him. But now he's he's created a thing called Exodus 90. 90 days you're supposed to change the way in which you do things. And it's supposed to make you all that you can be. And, and it might have a value to it. The same as he's also organizing people. Goes to the, these conferences where they're trying to organize people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Great. Great idea. But I also know the people that are influencing him just like those scholars that he had around his round table. Well, some of them, actually, his scholars, they were pretty okay. I mean, you know, I don't want to fault them individually, but I know some of the people that are guiding them in this European venture are the sons and, and nephews of the people in the World Economic Forum. And they're using his popularity to bring you all kinds of little truths about the psychology of mankind. But they've got a little poison in there too. And that poison... See, right now he's very involved with... Uh, Adil Khan. A guy who's a gene therapist. Treating people with gene therapy and other therapies. I won't go into all the details. But they're injecting... Other people's cells and other people's exosomes into people to solve problems. And they seem to solve problems. They seem to bring healing. Great signs and wonders. But Jesus wasn't doing any of that. He almost never used any external things to help people get better. And and it's funny because Jordan Peterson actually talks about it in an interview with that con fella that uh, already programmed in your DNA you can heal yourself through the DNA that God gave you. Of course, you can't heal because you can't tell your DNA what to do, but the Holy Spirit can. If you get rid of the conflict, and how do you get rid of the conflict? Well, one way is to pray, but you also have to watch, and then you also have to fast, because he didn't talk about fasting here, except for maybe fasting from falling asleep, or fasting from using other things like your sword. He tells them not to use the sword. You know, not to use these physical things to fix a spiritual problem because the enemy is spiritual. It's going to manifest itself in real physical ways, but if you want the full armor of God, you need the spiritual armor too. So that's what this he's telling us about if you... If you put everything together that Jesus is saying. If you want to leave out certain verses and skip those, then you're not going to get it. So eventually he's betrayed by this kiss of of Judas. A guy he just shared a meal with. And he's turned over to some troops that come out with the, the you know, from the high priest. And this is something that we're going to go through as we go through the trial. Is that there's there's... Different jurisdictions here. Rome is a jurisdiction. We talked a lot about this way in the past. Why Rome was even there. Their main thing was who is king. 
That's why they were invited to Jerusalem. Who was the rightful king? And people will tell you, they had to take Jesus to the, you know, uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor, which we know was the governor at that time, <laughs> uh, that they had to take him to him because only Rome could execute somebody. Nonsense. We know right in the scripture they were going to execute that woman by stoning her to death. They executed Stephen. They didn't take take Stephen to Pontius Pilate. It was only in matters of who is the king. Which gets us into the area of sedition and uh, insurrection. You'll see both of those words in the other Gospels and we'll talk about them as we get into 27. But um, the reality is it's the same Greek word. <laughs> that for, just for some reason, King James decides, you know, that the, the, the translators decide, in this place we're going to call it insurrection, and this, this place we're going to call it sedition. And, and over this place, we're going to call it something else, and over in this place, we're going to call it something else. And we'll go through that as we go through the text. But uh, this was about who is going to be the king. And of course, those at Pentecost decided Christ is our king and they could do that because of what Pontius Pilate will write and we'll see that as we uncover things. But in verse 51 he says, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Now, they came out with men with staves and and soldiers and stuff. These aren't Roman soldiers. These are soldiers. There might be a Roman soldier amongst them, just kind of as oversight. But chances are this these are just the soldiers that these guys are bringing. And this is going to be critical in understanding some of the things going on as we look at the other Gospels. I'll bring them all into this study so you, you see it. But he... Somebody amongst Jesus' people, we know they had swords. He says, if you don't have a sword in another guy's, you know, go out and buy one. Even if you have to sell your coat, get one. It wasn't just one guy who had two swords. They all had swords. Very common. But they weren't going to survive because of the use of the sword. This is very important. They were going to use this physical, external thing to keep them safe and protected. Or to awaken them. Or to make them wiser. They weren't going to take, you know, gene therapy. They weren't going to take, uh, you know, other chemicals that, you know, or plants. Eat certain plants and you become better and all this kind of stuff. Because God made you so you can survive amongst the plagues. If you have the Holy Spirit operating inside your temple, it will keep your temple safe. But it's a struggle sometimes to get to that point where you submit enough to the Holy Spirit that it can actually dwell in you. And then even when it does, it still may allow you to be tempted, which we'll see when Christ is on the cross. But Jesus says in verse 52, he says, Then said Jesus unto them, Put up again thy sword into thy into his place. into it Basically, into its place. And for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? 
But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled? That thus it must be. If you think you can find something in the physical world around you that will save you, it, you might as well take up the sword. Because <laughs> your end will come much quicker. If you take up something else that will save you, not whether it's knowledge or chemicals or plants or... Uh, you know, a bunker or whatever you want to create in this world. If you think that will save you, it will not. Your enemy is spiritual. You're going to win this battle because you submit to the Holy Spirit. Not because you figured out something very clever. You have to... The mere idea of praying is admitting that somebody else has the answer. Not you. The mere idea of having the patience of watching is fasting from all those other alternatives that the world will try to slip into your mind. They'll try to drive you mad with those. They will alter your character as you listen to that other voice. And so God sends us our brethren. He even sends us our enemies. So we should not be afraid to sit down with our brothers or those claiming to be our brothers, even if we know they're a Judas. We should not be trying to excommunicate or exercise authority one over the other. Because it draws us into the dark side. So in 55 we see, in the same hours said Jesus to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And they had laid hold of Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas. The high priest at that time. We'll talk a lot about Caiaphas. We already have. We have articles up. So you find out, who was this Caiaphas? Why does Jesus over and over again would not talk to people? Because they were plotting against him. I will tell you nothing. But Caiaphas, he told very specific things. Why? What what was going on? He knew what was in Caiaphas's heart. He knew, it just like he knew that Judas would betray him, he knew Caiaphas might repent. You know, I say might because that's from my point of view. But Jesus knew he did. It was there was no might in there because Jesus came that everybody might be saved, but everybody has to repent in order to get to that place. And some of the things you have to repent of is thinking that you can come up with a solution that will change you, that will make you wiser. No. You will not. The, only the Holy Spirit can make you wiser. And he goes on to say, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. That's where he was going to take them to them. He didn't talk to the scribes and the elders. But he did talk to Caiaphas. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against him, against Jesus, to put him to death. 
they were still plotting, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At least came to false witnesses. So, if you look at the Greek of this, it's kind of awkward. And I've seen translations that are less awkward. But basically, they're talking about false witnesses coming, but not... They're there, but what, are they not testifying? Did they find it hard to testify? Yet, we know that there's a record of testimony against him. So what was really going on? You know, Jesus is literally turning down the Holy Spirit to let the evil come in and witness against him. But, you know, he didn't maybe... still made it a challenge because the, the Holy Spirit operating through you, which you have no control over, will cause people to make a choice that will bring judgment to those people. When Jesus told his apostles, ye also are gods, and that they were going to sit and judge, you don't actually sit in a throne and judge people. You allow the Holy Spirit to operate in you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that will bring judgment. We'll talk more about this when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back. Uh, in verse 59, Peter's fo- well, 58, Peter's following from afar off. So even though he ran away, he still is mustering his, you know, sailor courage, his uh, seaman courage, his fisherman courage, and he's following after because his, just like he, his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. He, he fell asleep and then, you know, he tried to take up the sword and that was a bad idea. Where was he getting that idea? He wasn't getting it from the Holy Spirit. And Christ rebuked him and said, don't, you know, put it away. He didn't say throw it away, put it away. That's important. But don't, don't take up the sword. The sword is not the solution. Don't take up the things of this world. That's not the solution. Deep down, Christ could see his heart deep down. He said, continue and I will pray for you. And we see Peter continuing by following Jesus from afar. He didn't have the courage to go up there. And it wasn't his place. And of course, that's partly why he didn't have the courage. is because the Holy Spirit wasn't given to him. He wanted the courage. But he wasn't granted the courage. So he followed from afar off. But he's still somewhat trying to accomplish the goal of being born again of the Spirit through his own will. And praying is letting go of your will. Not my will, but thine. If you if you don't have that as the fundamental foundation of your prayer, if your prayer is, Lord, please grant me my will. <laughs> that, you're, you're, I don't know who you're praying to, but that is a bad idea. You know, that's like you're saying, Daddy, give me. Daddy, give me. Daddy, I want. You know, and that, that's a little bit of narcissism that is in every small child. Unfortunately, a lot of small children grow up to be big narcissists and they do all kinds of damage and injury to everybody else. 
So if you want to pray, it's not my will but thine. And one of the evidences that you're trying to do it with your own will is that you're taking things from this world, you know, whether it's DNA therapy or drugs or uh, whatever your solution is, you're trying to take those things and fix something that is spiritual. Once you fix the thing that is spiritual, which you can't even do, only the Holy Spirit can fix it, but you let the Holy Spirit in, He will start to fix those things. Now, you're living in the world, you know, and, you know, if you get a broken leg, you know, you may need a splint. That's something from this physical world. But realize the fact that your leg is broken and that you need a splint is because you still got more repentance to do. You know, if you step out of the boat and you start to sink, evidently you lack some faith there somewhere and you have to start reaching out for God. Don't reach out for the things of this world. Reach out for God. This message is going out to a lot of different people right now. You look into your own life. What are you reaching for for your salvation? Is it spiritual or is it physical? Whether it's a sword or a gun or a bunker or whatever... It's it's not going to do it. So he's following from far off and these chief priests and the elders and the council. And that word council there is the Greek word that would be the Sanhedrin. So it's not just... We, we see the word council. There's other words that they translate into council that do not mean Sanhedrin. But here that is the word that we're dealing with. And and like I said in, in 191 BC, the, the Sanhedrin suddenly lost faith in the high priest. They didn't pick the high priest before 191 B.C. It picked like we talked about earlier in the show. And it was the result. And the people have control over who the high priest is, not by majority vote, but through this kind of electoral college of every elder of every congregation. An elder is a head of a family. That's what makes you an elder in a congregation. That you have a family and that you're, you're bringing your family together with other families and trying to operate in a free assembly to take care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. The world brings families together, but they bring them together in things like democracies and, and social democracies and communist governments and, you know, which is, leads to its own degeneration. The degeneration of the spirit, then the the degeneration of the flesh. And that's one of the things this Dr. Uh, Adil Khan is trying to deal with this degeneration. You know, he's he's kind of going to turn around aging. He's going to help people be born again by injecting exosomes from umbilical cords. (laughs) And, uh, you know, embryonic fluid. They're, they're going to inject that into your knee or whatever it is and cause a regeneration because in those exosomes there will be cell signaling and th- that cell signaling may cause certain tissues to grow together better. But your body can produce all that. It's not because of things we'll talk about in another show. But the spirit is seek the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, and then the jurisdiction of the kingdom of God on earth will take place. Everything else will be provided. So anyway, 
He's brought before this council, which is the Sanhedrin, but it's a corrupt Sanhedrin. And like I said, at the time of Zechariah, the Sanhedrin was so corrupt, uh, shortly after Zechariah, when Zechariah was murdered, was so corrupt that the majority of the Sanhedrin just walked out and said, we're not going to have anything to do with this anymore. Because they, these guys are so corrupt. Now, that, that corruption came over hundreds of years. It, go, it began before 191. Probably the last decent high priest was uh, Simon the Just, which we talked about. We have a page on that, so you can go find out who he was. But um, they, a new Sanhedrin formed, but it wasn't a righteous Sanhedrin, and it formed after the murder of Zechariah. So it, it w- didn't have the authority coming down from they still sat in the seat of Moses but they were already condemned by their actions and then along comes John the Baptist who was the rightful high priest and he's doing something different if you're not doing what John the Baptist was doing you're not following the way of Christ if you're not doing what the early church was doing you're not following the way of Christ and then you'll have news items where they're saying well you know we have to get involved in politics while they're not even practicing pure religion, which is easily defined right in the scripture, when they're actually practicing covetous practices, where they're desiring benefits at the expense of their neighbor through this government they want to now control with their vote, and eventually some will actually, I've actually seen people, you know, not right in front, well, actually, I probably have seen people in front of me. They're not a part of our network saying that uh, we're going to take up the gun to fix this. They'll want to become insurrectionists. Well, if you want to do that, I guess you want to follow Barabbas, because that's what Barabbas was doing. You're not following Christ. Christ succeeded. Barabbas didn't. There's a lot of messiahs that appeared around this time. And they all ended up dead. Uh, Christ ended up dead, but then he lived again. You want to be on Christ's side. That's that's where you want to go. Because ultimately, this is a spiritual battle. So anyway, so we got the Sanhedrin meeting there, trying to bring their false witnesses. God, uh, Jesus is allowing them to do this. but And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. We talked about that. The temple of God is you. The temple of God is Christ. There was never supposed to be a stone temple. We covered that in the Exodus study. We are all personal tents of flesh, carbon units, in which our spirit dwells. And we don't want to dwell in there alone. We want to bring in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of other spirits that want to come in there too, which we see talked about, or at least influence your spirit. And how do you know? Well, if they got you reaching for things of this world to solve problems that are clearly a spiritual digression and degeneration, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's simple. That's not the Holy Spirit. And you need to repent of that. Turn around fast from that. And seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then then all the physical stuff will follow. In 62 it says, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answer it, Answerest 
thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure, that's a jurisdictional term, <laughs> thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou thou be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And of course, he was the Son of God. He was the Christ. But uh, there was somebody else claiming to be the Son of God at that time. That was Caesar. He was claiming to be the Son of God. That's, that's, a, that's an office in Rome. And what did the Son of God in Rome do? And this is the answer that I look for all through the seminary. That w- what, what, what were they doing in the temples of Rome? In the temples of Athens? What was their function? There was a religious function in many of those temples, not all of them. But almost all of them had an effect on their religious practices. But their religion was how they took care of the needy. Rome instituted a system of legal charity where they forced the offerings of somebody to provide for the needs of somebody else. John the Baptist said, no, you don't do it by force. If you have something that you can share, share it. Whether it be your clothes or your food or, you know, habitations or an extra tent, share it. He was preaching charity and love and the Corbin of Moses and the Corbin of Christ, the sacrifice of Moses and the sacrifice, free will offerings. Everybody else was promoting forced offerings. So all these churches out there, they're saying, they have to get involved in politics and fix this because these guys are going crazy. No. No. you got to get involved in righteousness. And righteousness, as Jesus was saying, comes from the heart. The evil comes also from the heart. How do you know if you're doing evil or you're doing righteousness? Well, one way is that you think there's a physical solution that you can find and calculate and measure out and implement in your life and the lives of others and that will fix them. No, Jesus wasn't doing that. We know that he healed person after person after person and never used anything. Only once do we see him actually use something, which is this clay that he picked up on the ground and his own spittle and he put it in it. Now, you know, in your spit, when you spit on something, you know what, what's in that spit? <laughs> Exosomes. <laughs> That's the same, same thing that this Dr. Uh, Adil Khan, which is an interesting name. He spells it with a K. I'm not saying it's C-O-N. But maybe, and, and he seems sincere when you hear him talking. But maybe he's been conned by something else that thinks, I'm going to inject the DNA from this baby into this person. Now, he he specifically says he does not use fetus DNA. He says, we don't do that. And there's actually, he knows that there's a problem with doing that. And other people are doing it, even though it's illegal. But other people are doing it. And there is a problem, because you're more likely to develop cancer. But there's a lot of things you could inject in your body that's more likely to cause you to develop cancer. But, you know, you can figure that out. We've got 
lots of articles on that, but what I'm worried about is you interjecting things of the Spirit into you that are not of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to learn to distinguish which one is which. Because one is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can bring you destruction. So don't do that. So in this verse 64, Jesus saith unto them, because they're demanding him to answer. Caiaphas is demanding him to answer. And Jesus saith unto him, to Caiaphas. He's going to speak right to Caiaphas and answer these charges that are being put upon him. But what does he say? He says, thou hast said. Thou hast said. That's that's actually the same thing he says to Pontius Pilate, when Pontius Pilate says, Are you a king? Thou sayest, <laughs> yeah. Jesus knows conversations these guys already had. And it's very clear, and we'll get into it as we get into the trial. Pontius Pilate knows Jesus Christ is the rightful king. He is the rightful Christ, the rightful Messiah. And for Judea, he's the rightful son of God. Because Judea didn't have to make Caesar the hold the office of son of God. See, the son of God is the, is the guy who's the head of the religion. That's, that's his actual job. Because it, the word God there just means judge. He, he has supposedly connection with the, the God creator. And so he gets to define, you know, if they're corrupt priests, div- not rightly dividing the bread from house to house in their system of social welfare, he can fire them. So that makes them the son of God. We're all sons of God, but he's the rightful son of God. But Jesus wants to return that power that was put into the king way back with Saul and David. He wants to put that back into your hands. And he wants to do it through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But you won't be able to wield that sword of power unless you're guided by the Holy Spirit. But anyway, so he says... Thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, unto you, Caiaphas, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man, which, you know, we have a page on Son of Man. Son of Man is the righteous Son of Man. You know, the Son that does the will of the Father. That's, that's the good Son. Not the Son who doesn't do the will of the Father. Who looks for solutions in the world and the flesh and the devil. But the one who looks for solutions in the spirit. So he says, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, is he telling Caiaphas, you're going to see me at the second coming? Because, of course, now, second coming never appears anywhere in the Bible. That's part of a man-made doctrine. And it's not that he isn't going to come, because he certainly is. But it doesn't say he's just going to come twice. He didn't say that this is the second coming and then he's not coming anymore. We put that on, and the, the, the problem of putting that word second there is you think it's only going to happen once. Well, Jesus can come anytime to any one of us, and he can come in the clouds as many times as he wants. And, and, and he can do that. I mean, he's the Christ. 
But if you start limiting it, that he's only going to come this once, that everything's going to happen, just that, no, that doesn't appear to be the case. Because he just told Caiaphas, you're going to see me. Caiaphas is dead. He didn't say, you're going to see it. He said, Caiaphas is going to see it. Very clear in the text. Did Caiaphas see it? Well, we'll talk about that. You can go to the article on Caiaphas. 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? You know, we see that going on all the time now. You know, like with the, the, the trials of the uh, insurrectionists of January 6th. This is what, you know, what, what is it today? The, it's January 6th. It's a tradition. You know, the, we'll have to make this a holiday someday. But uh, they lost all the testimony. <laughs> oh, do we have to keep the record? Uh, we just lost all the testimony against all these people. We got them in jail. We're torturing them. And we, we you could see the video now. These, most of these people are just walking around. They're staying in with the, in the guidelines of the little ropes, you know, that they have there. You know, like you see in theaters. They're not stepping over that. And the guy, that terrible guy, shaman guy, which probably has his own problems, he's given a tour by the guards. They're opening the doors for him. It's not an insurrection. I think you keep using that word. I do not think it means what they think it means. But they lost all the evidence. Again, you know, all the testimony. They can't find it. Oh, oh, we, and that we know that they actually admitted that they destroyed a lot of it. We didn't know we had to keep that. You're in Congress and you don't know that you have to keep records? <laughs> I like to like with that. But it, they're crazy. There's insanity afoot. But the, the reason they're getting away with it, because a lot of us are sitting in darkness. We need to start sitting in the light. So the high priest rent his clothes and said, we don't need witnesses anymore. <laughs> Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. And the fact is, poor Caiaphas, he married into the wrong family. Now, I don't know about his wife. I don't really know anything about his wife, except she's the daughter of Ananias. And we see an Ananias later. I don't know if it's the same one. I've always been looking for some sort of record that ties him to the Ananias who had put the last five high priests in power. But those were all sons of Ananias. Is it the same guy? I, I, I can't tell you. I suspect it is. But, anyway, the... Uh, the reality is is that uh, uh, he was put up to this because in the long run he's going to feel guilty about this. But of course, Peter's outside going to feel guilty too. You know, and, and Peter's going to repent. And I, I think because Jesus is talking to Caiaphas, Jesus is going to pray for Caiaphas too. Just the same. He's not going to excommunicate. He, Jesus doesn't have to excommunicate anybody from the kingdom of God. If you don't follow the Holy Spirit, if you start looking to the world, the flesh, and the devil, you're going to excommunicate yourself because you're cutting off the Holy Spirit. You're sinning against the Holy You're rejecting the Holy Spirit and you're taking up things of this world. Don't do that. I pray you do not do that. Verse 66. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Now, who's he asking? Sanhedrin. 
and that's Caiaphas. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Well, those guys, they went down a road of darkness, and they have no idea what they're doing. And of course, Jesus is going to later say, forgive them, they know not what they do. But the repercussions of what they do is still going to take place in their own life. The consequences is still going to be there. They could still repent, but they'll have more to repent of, turn away from. The more you go down a road, the harder it is to come back. Don't go down those roads. 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and the damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, "Ah, I know not what thou sayest. I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, with this Jesus of Galilee, what? Why would you say that? That's crazy talk. You know, he's denying Jesus. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. He's, I don't even know him, he's saying. Uh, wow. This is brave Peter. But he has no control. You have to have the Holy Spirit to have real courage. Us guys, we like to think that we're courageous. I mean, we want to think that. That's the flesh. And that's reasonable. We, What we want is to be courageous. We have to realize that we cannot be courageous without the Holy Spirit because courage is a gift we cannot conjure that up out of our knowledge and the information we have you're you're too easily deceived you need the Holy Spirit to give you courage so again he denied with an oath in, in verse 73 and after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter surely thou also are one of them for thy speech betrayeth thee then began he to curse and swear saying I know not the man and immediately the cock crew or crowed so how do you think Peter felt when he heard that well how do you feel if you end up denying that the Spirit is enough and looked at the things to protect you in the flesh. Well, we'll consider that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're facing this last verse in this 26th chapter of Matthew. And Peter has denied Christ three times to 
one maiden in one place, another maiden in another place. When we see this account in, in other places, uh, there is less of the detail. But, and this is where we get this, that three times he denies him. And then the cock crows. And, and Peter remembers the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. And he realized that Christ knew all along that he was going to screw up. But it didn't matter to Christ that he was going to screw up. Christ was still going to love him. He was still going to pray for him. Intervene for him. Peter had an advocate with the rightful Son of God. The Son of Man. The obedient Son of Man. Peter wasn't obedient. Peter was not seeking the light, but the light kind of smacked him in the face. And he realized, oh my gosh, I don't, I'm not as courageous as I thought. I'm a coward. That I'm not as loyal to the Spirit of God as I should be. I denounced Christ. I didn't just not follow him like the others who ran away, probably when he was following Jesus from far off he was thinking those other cowards those Zebedee brothers they they went running off I'm not going to run off I'm going to follow I'm going to see what I can do and he was that was his nature he was a, a man of action a man of courage it was just ingrained in him but without the Holy Spirit his actions can be counter to the kingdom and he needs to repent of that and when this he had denied this three times done contrary to what he knew was right it it broke his heart but a lot of times and of course this is what we see before the exodus the Israelites had to had to be broken a bit you know when they no longer could get the benefits of the pharaoh but they still had to pay their tally of bricks. That was hard on them. The, the, you know, the, the Pharaoh, the, the straw of the Pharaoh was, you have to realize the temple was their social welfare. They went into bondage because they wanted to eat at the table of Pharaoh. At that time, the Pharaoh's granaries at the temple, because religion was how you take care of the needy, so of course they had these granaries, had them in Sumer. They had them in all these places. They had these granaries. So in time of famine, the priests could go out and rightly divide the bread from house to house. And, and that was really important. And the, so that's w- w- what they would look to, to the temples of the Pharaoh, who was the son of God. He was over the temple. He could fire the priests. Now, the priests didn't have to. They didn't owe the tax. They didn't owe a percentage of their labor. The, everything that was given to the priests was sacrosanct. You couldn't, you couldn't touch it. And so, Pharaoh was collecting money in the form of goods and services, taxes, 20% of everybody's labor. Everybody in Egypt, not just the Israelites. Everybody in Egypt went into the system. One-fifth of your labor belongs to the government of Pharaoh. That was the bondage of Egypt. 
But a portion of that goes in to keep the granaries of the Pharaoh full. Now, he filled them originally because Joseph said, you, you better save up and fill them because we're going to need them because Joseph could see the future. He could interpret the dream. He knew what they meant because he had an insight into the Holy Spirit. Joseph was one of the key instruments in creating the Hebrew language as we know it today and the symbolism of the language putting it together all these different meanings of letters into words Joseph was extremely instrumental this guy was a bright boy but they went into bondage and even Reuben says because we didn't hear the cries of our brother they cast their brother away they sent him off to slavery Rather than embrace him. They excommunicated their brother from their family. And so he, Reuben knew, this is why we went into bondage. This is why we are stuck eating at the table of a man who's going to say 20% of our labor is going to belong to him. And we have to do it or our families will starve. Because we have no other alternative. Because we already turned our back on God. Because they cast their brothers away. We don't cast our brothers away. We turn up the light. And if our brothers will not let go of the evil that is influencing them, they will leave on their own. We pray they don't. But they will leave on their own. And if if you can't turn up the light enough, you get in your prayer closet and pray and Watch. Wait upon the Lord. When I say watch, that's that Gregorio. (laughs) Gregorio. Pray and watch. Which which we teach a meditation, which is an ancient Hebrew meditation. And it won't do you any good without the Holy Spirit. But if you want to do a meditation, I recommend it. But it's basically what Jesus is doing. Admitting that he doesn't have the answers... The answers are not found in the world. The answers are found in the Spirit. That's what your prayer is. Because you're not praying to the world. You're praying to the Spirit. So now this manifests itself in things like they had to go and pray to the Pharaoh. We don't have any bread. We haven't been listening to God. We've been excommunicating our brother from our family. Out of jealousy and envy and anger and resentment. Fear. Whatever the reason. I'm sure all the brothers had a little bit different reason. But they all did it. And Reuben says, because you did this, you went, we are all going into bondage. And he knew it. And then that bondage got more rigorous as the Pharaoh died and new ones took over. I mean, you know, we used to have Calvin Coolidge as the president in the United States. It wasn't half bad. He said the nation was never safer except during my nap. That was when the nation was safer. Because <laughs> during my nap, I couldn't sign anything <laughs> that Congress came up with. He could have easily won the next election, but he knew that the Depression was coming. He knew the collapse of the economy was coming. He said, I, I don't want to be president because the people won't listen. It didn't mean that he didn't go out and still warn people. He did. But he didn't want to be president when this came down. And, you know, that that was an individual choice. Because he knew it was coming. Well, I know more stuff is coming. 
But I know the answer is in the Spirit, in seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and to cast our brothers into bondage, cast them away, to turn our backs on them, is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to pray for them. Even Judas Iscariot, he shared bread with. And he prayed for Judas. And he prayed for Caiaphas. And you have to pray for one another. And you have to seek the Spirit of God. Not the remedies of the world. And of course, now this, we can we can look at this, and we've talked a great deal about legal charity, the social welfare system, socialism, communism. These are all things that degenerate the people. Polybius knew it 150 years before Christ. John the Baptist was preaching it. Christ was saying that the, this kind of Corbin forced contribution was making the word of God to none effect. It was degenerating the masses. And of course now when we look out there in the world, we're wondering why all these people can't see. Because they've degenerated. And along comes some guy like Adil Khan, and he may be well-intentioned. But he still has something to learn. You don't inject other people's DNA into people and heal them. You don't, and he knows that, you know, just cortisone and just, uh, pain medication, he knows those things are not, he's objective enough to see that that doesn't work. The same as, same as Jordan Peterson sees a lot of things don't work. And they're right about a lot of those things. But it's what they don't see that's going to get them into trouble. And you have to see the whole truth. Or what you're left with, what you're left with is a lie. So, don't look to the world, the flesh and the devil for your solution. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And seek it with others. Love your brother. Love your enemy. And uh, if your enemy chooses to stay the enemy of the Holy Spirit, I mean, you know, like, uh, it's okay if people don't, like I've told people that you can't offend me with a stick. Now, I'm not encouraging people to hit me with a stick, but the reality is, is if you don't believe me, you want to be angry at me, go ahead and be angry at me. You can call me names. There's somebody actually on the net the last couple of weeks that was calling us troglodytes. <laughs> you know, uh, he actually tells us what he says the word it means. It doesn't actually mean what he says, but that's okay. But um, I, I don't think I'm a troglodyte, but it really doesn't matter his judgment. It matters God's judgment. And, uh, you know, so, you know, he accused us of excommunicating him and... Uh, uh, deleting his information years ago he was on some of our what we used to call the Yahoo groups we didn't excommunicate him I don't think he remembers right we don't do that we just turn up the truth and, you know, we're not required to agree with anybody except for the, we seek to agree with the Holy Spirit and that's another thing people talk about us is his holy church the one true church well his holy church is the one true church but I'm not his holy church that's a phrase it's the name of a website, for God's sake. We seek to be His holy church, because that's what we're commanded to do, is to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And His holy church is not just the kingdom of God, but 
that will be the issues of jurisdiction that we're going to be bringing up in chapter 27. Which we can probably get into a little bit. But, uh, you know, in the side panel, and it'll probably change a great deal. It actually changed during the program. <laughs> so, but, uh, we, we're, we're warned about people who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, we see in Mark 7.21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceedeth evil, thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. You're not going to get rid of those things by taking cortisone shots. That, you know, or, or, you know, medications or stuff. I'm not saying that you don't change your diet. You do change your diet. I'm not saying that you might not take some of these other remedies from time to time. You know, like put some sort of disinfectant on a woman that is, yeah, there are things you can do. But every time you have to use something of the world to fix something of your body, realize that God could have healed this. Now, I don't want you going out and tempting God and saying, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that because I expect God to save me. You know, I won't take blood transfusion. I don't encourage blood transfusion, but I can't prohibit these things. You know, if you're in a car accident and you lose too much blood, your vascular system is going to collapse. You may need intervention. But you can ask yourself, you know, don't tempt God and say, well, I'm not going to use any of their their remedies. God can heal me. That's arrogance. God can heal you. But it's an individual call for an individual. We should not be imposing it on other people with a doctrine. But every time you have to reach out into the world for a solution, realize you know, and if that solution has brought you into bondage, be a good servant. Because as the Holy Spirit dwells in you, take what you, you know, there are people who are going out and, and, and trying to get out of the system and they cripple themselves and they cripple their family and they, they become a burden to everybody else around them. No, you're in the bondage. Pay your tally of bricks. But take every ounce of strength that you have left over and start doing what the kingdom is. Start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Because then you open the door to the Holy Spirit. If you say, I'm not going to take any, I'm going to be separate. Well, you're also going to be separate from the Holy Spirit because that isn't, that wasn't the, that wasn't the, the remedy that Moses brought. That's not the remedy that John the Baptist brought. That's not the remedy that Jesus Christ brought. Now, yes, he eventually says, come out of them, my people. And, of course, there was that morning where the Israelites were called out. They weren't actually called out. They were cast out of Egypt and they followed Moses. And we want to be ready to do that. But we need to maybe go through some plagues first to learn the skill and art of the kingdom. In Galatians 5.19 we see now the works of the flesh are manifest. 
which are these adultery what what what's adultery adultery of the body it's not just you know it's very clear that most of the adultery is not adultery between a husband and, and or a man and a married woman most of the adultery that they mention in the bible is national adultery and when you put stuff in your body that shouldn't be in your body that's a form of adultery when you go to the world for solutions instead of the bride of Christ that's fornication uncleanness is taking in things that are not remedies given to you by the Holy Spirit lasciviousness is being you know vain and he he goes on to tell you he talks about idolatry and we know idolatry is covetousness well we don't want to covet the form upon which we speak we don't want to say nobody can speak but me or anybody who disagrees with me that that would be almost adultery itself witchcraft well it could be pharmaceuticals I mean that's what a lot of people say you know pharmakia because we see that in, in the Greek well, there's all sorts of remedies that people are giving you that are of the world. And some of them, you know, like, you know, Moses was allowed to take the oils. And we see essential oils being given to Jesus as a gift from the wise men from Parthia. So those things are okay, but the remedy, the ultimate remedy, is love. And not just any love, but the love that Christ had who would pray for his betrayers and pray for the, his deniers and pray for the judge that is convicting him and sending him to the cross. And we know he's praying for him because he's speaking to him and, and warning him. Can you imagine Caiaphas? You know, where they talk. And it may or may not be true, but we see from Josephus that there were men standing in the clouds. People argue whether that's authentic or not, but supposedly it's referenced there in that text. And it's actually referenced in other places. But we know Caiaphas was probably still alive at that time. And if it took place, Caiaphas would have seen Jesus standing in the clouds. And then he would likely repent. Feel just about as bad as, maybe a little worse than Peter. If he wasn't already repenting. And we know that when they found his bone box. They found two crucifixion nails in there. Now we don't know that those are Jesus' crucifixion nails. And somebody has stolen them. <laughs> so they're now missing. Uh, but the it could have been he was crucified. But his bones were in that bone box. And he was there. At the fall of Jerusalem. Along with Nicodemus. Along with. Uh, a man called uh, well Joseph of Arimathea was supposedly there but we'll cover that when we get into it but what I want you to understand is that we don't want to hate we don't want to reject we don't want to our judgment and this is what I was intimating before the judgment that we are bringing upon people is delivered by the Holy Spirit not by our sword not by our power not by our authority by the authority of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to turn up that Holy Spirit. In order to turn up that Holy Spirit, we have to make room in our hearts for the Holy Spirit that will guide us. If the things of the world are 
sending us to do things that are of the world, then it's the wrong things coming out of our hearts. And we need to repent of that. But Galatians goes on, besides idolatry and witchcraft and hatred, he says variance, which is another description we can talk about, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, that's what Barabbas is accused of, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness. Drunkenness on what? Is it just alcohol? On anything that is a substance that is supposed to alter the state of our mind to make us feel better. Any kind of drug. Methamphetamines, uh, marijuana. Now I'm not saying that some, some things can't be beneficial. They could be. But when you start dabbling in the things of this world, you better consult with the Holy Spirit as to whether you should be touching them. Because they can have an effect on you. Because ultimately, the solution is in the Spirit. And you should not be rioting or reveling with one another because such shall not inherit the kingdom. Not as a punishment, because they're already rejecting the ways of the kingdom. Now we have to turn around. We have a different leaven. And those of you who want, you can go look at our article on leaven to find out what that is. But yeah, we need to focus on creating that network of charity to provide for the needy of our society through faith, hope, and charity. And you won't be able to do that without forgiveness. So if you've had animosity with others, uh, set it aside. Walk in forgiveness. Come together. Learn to care for one another. Try to allow, open your heart up to the Holy Spirit. Not to the solutions that the world tells you will save you. Because the only one who will save you is the Spirit of Christ. And that's why he sent us the Holy Spirit as our comforter. So with all that said, and very little time left, I I will give you an introduction to Matthew 27, which we're going to talk about again, the death plot. Matthew keeps bringing up these death plots. But also Judas repenting. Because it, it seems to be confusing as to what exactly happened to Judas. And we don't know where his soul is now. We can We can imagine, but that's us. And uh, and they talk about Corbin in Matthew 27. But they don't write the word Corbin. They put a different word down there. To give you an idea what Corbin is, we should take it what they... When they, they translate Corbin, it appears more than once in the Bible. But they they don't translate that same word, Corbin, in Matthew 27. So what did they translate it as? And then... We also look at Pontius Pilate saying this is the king of the Jews. And, but then there's a lot, we're going to go into a lot of the uh, skeptics that some, there are actually Bible scholars out there doing commentaries saying that they don't believe that there was ever a Bar, or Barabbas. They're just deleting these parts of the gospel and that for very feeble reasons, and we'll go into some of those their logic, not because it's important to your salvation, but it may be important in your conversation with others who will say, you know, stupid things like, if you believe in the Bible, you believe in unicorns. And when anybody tells you that, you say, well, at the time it was translated, a unicorn was a rhinoceros. And if you don't believe in a rhinoceros, I can take you over to Africa and they'll put a little bit of belief in you. <laughs> 
Because that's what a unicorn was. It was a one-horned rhinoceros. They're, they're real things. And if you read in the text, you, you would realize that. If you did a little bit of homework, you'd realize that. So we're going to talk about the jurisdiction of Pontius Pilate, the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, which we've touched on a little bit, and the jurisdiction of Christ, because that's the jurisdiction you want to be in. And it's going to require some repentance and a humble heart, and you're going to have to walk in forgiveness and thanksgiving. And until you start doing that, I hope to see you on the network. And so all I can say is peace upon your house, and may God be with you. So join us there. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.